Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast. Today is Friday, September 16th, 2022. Hope you're having a great week. Hope you're having a great Friday, and I hope you're going to have a great weekend. We've got lots of content for you today at Hot Air. Uh, Big story that actually uh, broke last night, and I wrote about this morning, which was that Trump actually did win his battle in court, at least for right now to have a special master appointed to review the materials that was seized from Mar-a-Lago to make sure that the FBI does not get, uh, does not have um, uh, any sort of privileged material. And this is uh, of course a, a setback for the department of justice. It's, uh, it's unclear as to just how well this is going to work for Trump. It is a tactical victory and it does delay things a little bit for him. Uh, it delays the the process of the investigation that the Department of Justice is doing, something they complain bitterly about in this uh, challenge to the um, seizure of his materials. They also appointed um, Judge Raymond Deary, which is a very interesting development in this as well. Uh, Deary was the judge who approved the final uh, surveillance warrant on Carter Page as a um, Fisk judge, a FISA, a FISA court judge. And both uh, Trump is actually Trump's side anyway, is the one who actually proposed Deary for this position. The Department of Justice went along with it. And uh, so the judge apparently felt pretty comfortable appointing Deary to this. Deary is retiring, so he's he's not going to have any stake in this. Uh, Apparently, he's going to become completely inactive at the end of this um, special master appointment. And so he doesn't really have to worry about whether or not this is going to impact his career or not. Um, He's in his 70s. He is going to be gone anyway. Uh, I do think it's rather interesting that the Trump team appointed somebody that was connected to the FISA court issues in the Russia collusion case and that the Department of Justice would have uh, gone along with Deary, knowing that he's probably pretty sore over the way that the FBI and the Department of Justice misrepresented the facts in that uh, warrant application. So, I mean, I think that there's going to be some really interesting things that are going to take place in this. Plus, Judge Cannon is actually not just limiting this to the questions of executive privilege and uh, attorney-client privilege, but also to he, she also wants Deary to settle the issues of classification and declassification, whether or not that this material was declassified. This is sort of the, the entire predicate for the Department of Justice, and they were the ones that were hoping to be able to settle that matter themselves. Donald Trump was on our friend Hugh Hewitt's show yesterday morning, uh, talking about the fact that he had formally declassified all the material that is in that was in his uh, possession. We'll see. Deary will have a lot to say about that. Probably, though, not until the end of November. So this is not going to get settled before the midterms. Um, it was a bit of a surprise, I think, to some observers who thought that Trump's demand for a special master was somewhat specious. I had said all along that I didn't understand why the Department of Justice didn't provide for this right up front, knowing that there were going to be issues about attorney-client privilege, about at least claims of executive privilege. And I'm not so sure I buy into the claims there. I think Andy McCarthy's probably right that executive privilege expires at the end of a term uh, and that it retains to the office, not to the individual. However, that's never actually been fully adjudicated. And this may end up at the Supreme Court on that point alone. Uh, Very interesting stuff, and we're going to keep an eye on that. Uh, Lots of interest today in the uh, Russian-Ukraine war. Uh, Interestingly enough, uh, India's Prime Minister uh, Narendra Modi 
scolded Putin publicly. They were holding a joint um, a joint presser, I guess, and scolded uh, Putin publicly about the war, saying this is not the era for war and urging him to bring the war to a conclusion through negotiations. Putin said, well, he's been trying to negotiate with Ukraine, but they don't want to negotiate with us. Um they don't want to negotiate on the basis of Russia retaining any territory in Ukraine, which is the reason why Zelensky is saying it's uh, not time for that. Uh, another really interesting development today, two interesting developments actually in the uh, Russian-Ukraine war. First off, apparently uh, Ukrainians are starting to target the city of Kherson. Uh, there was a report this morning from actually from Russian sources that they had successfully targeted a meeting of leadership in, you know, occupation leadership, I should say, in the city of Kherson. And they provided the video of the explosions. Apparently there were five HIMARS uh, artillery rounds that were fired at this. HIMARS being extremely accurate. They knew exactly what was going on. So they've got pr pretty good intel as to where these people are at in the city. Uh, Russians are chalking this up to terrorism, but I find it interesting that they're reporting on this at all. This is RIA Novosti, which is a state-run media outlet, which is running the video of this. And they're trying to um, put this out as a, uh, as a as proof of terrorism. But I think that Russians might be sophisticated enough to ask how, the, how artillery rounds, how artillery systems got close enough to Kherson uh, in order to do this in the first place. And do terrorists really have artillery? Or is this a war between two armies? I don't think that this is, I don't think that that's going to be uh, quite the, quite the win that uh, RIA Navasti thought it might be, but you know, we'll see. Uh, the question of whether or not there's going to be negotiations extends now to Germany. Germany, this is the other big, big development. Germany seized three Rosneft um, uh, refineries in Germany. They were joint, um, they were joint efforts. Rosneft is the uh, Russian oil company. And they operated these three refineries. Germany seized those refineries from them today and uh, to ensure their energy supply for the winter. And they, they're saying it's temporary, but my guess is that this is going to be a long-term seizure uh, and that um, they're going to probably buy out the other uh, commercial partners. And the Shell Oil was wanting to sell anyway. Uh, and I think the German government is probably going to buy those out and make sure that they retain control. So those are... Very interesting developments. We'll have more. The Institute for the Study of War at understandingwar.org, by the way, is a really great resource. If you're not following it there, you should probably do that. I link to it quite often, uh, both in my posts and on the headlines, which, you know, I'm now running. So I, I get a chance to do all that kind of stuff. And I think you'll find it to be an ex excellent resource. Uh, other big stories today, of course, the the <laughs> Martha's Vineyard story is absolutely hilarious. We've got a number of different uh, analyses of this. Uh, you've got David Strom writing about it, Karen Townsend writing about it. You're going to have uh, John Sexton. By the time this gets up, John Sexton will have written about it. He's got posts up. There's there's more posts in the hopper about this. The absolute meltdown on the left from having uh, illegal immigrants land in Martha's Vineyard, 50 of them, and how this is a, a hum humanitarian crisis when the Border Patrol is releasing thousands of illegal immigrants into El Paso, into Brownsville, into other Texas cities, is absolutely staggering. And uh, the, the Martha's Vineyard um, 
airlift didn't come from Texas. That came from actually from Florida. Uh, and those were Venezuelan immigrants that were let into Florida. And um, and they, and DeSantis sent them over to uh, Martha's Vineyard. Uh, there was also some that were sent to Kamala Harris's um, house at the Naval Observatory. Um, and so I believe it was either Karen or Beach Wellborn that wrote about that. But either way, we've got more on that topic, because this is it's it's a huge issue. It's going to keep unfolding probably for days, politically speaking, and uh, we're keeping a close eye on that. Um, also, David Strom has has a post that just went up as I'm as I'm recording this about uh, the uh, IRS and the and Janet Yellen's um, uh, descent into apparatchik status within the Biden administration. Uh, as they expand the IRS as the foundation of government, as I believe Yellen said, uh, or at least that's the quote that I, I pulled out of David Strom's post. So go read, go read David Strom's post. David Strom, this is his first full week at Hot <laughs> Air, and he's doing great. I, I, we've gotten a ton of uh, of great feedback uh, about uh, David's posts, and don't forget, I've got my um, VIP. Uh, video series with Adam Baldwin, the amiable skeptics. We had our, our second episode yesterday. The next one will go up on Monday, but don't miss this. Don't miss this episode. We talk about forgetting 9-11, forgetting history, and the issue of how we are seeing each other as enemies rather than opponents. And we're seeing our enemies as opponents rather than en enemies. Why that is and where that's going to lead. Adam Baldwin, of course, uh, my good friend, as well as a very well-known uh, figure in entertainment for decades, um, uh, shares his thoughts on that and, uh, and amiably. So we're always amiable on the amiable skeptic. So I hope you get a chance to, to watch that coming up now is my conversation with my friend Libby Sternberg, who's written a new novel called Daisy, which takes the, uh, Daisy Buchanan, uh, character from the great Gatsby, one of the great American novels of all time, and imagines what her life is beyond the Great Gatsby. It's a, it's an interesting conversation. We talk a lot about the Great Gatsby. We also talk a little bit about one of my favorite novels, um, Herman Welk's uh, The Cane Mutiny, which I think is one of the underappreciated great American novels of all time. And so we have a great conversation about that. I hope that you enjoy this. It's a perfect conversation for the weekend. Uh, looking forward, we're also going to be talking with Harry Crocker about his Western novel. That'll be later next week. And I've got other things in the hopper, of course. You know, we've got Andrew Malcolm on Tuesday, uh, Dwayne Patterson on Thursdays. Yesterday's show with Dwayne Patterson was a hoot. I hope you get a chance to, to watch that and much, much more. Uh, plus, I talk about how CNN has made lemonade and even Don Lemon is making lemonade. That's a post that will go up this afternoon as well. Have yourselves a great weekend. Don't miss a minute of The Ed Morrissey Show and stand by for Libby Sternberg. Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show. Joining me right now is one of my friends from way back in the blogosphere, Libby Sternberg, who has a brand new book out. Now, it's one thing to write fiction, Libby. I I, I tried it early on in my writing career and <laughs> tried it a few times. And I kind of thank God every single day that nobody actually ever read any of that stuff. Oh, come on. <laughs> What kind of fiction <laughs> was it? Oh man, genre fiction. I tried. I tried science fiction. I oh. tried. I tried detective. Uh, I tried a detective novel. I, I mean, uh -huh. and then there was a one that you couldn't even classify. I mean, I guess just maybe just you know, 
literary fiction wasn't terribly literary. Uh, but <laughs> and then I then I discovered blogging and. Uh, <laughs> Which is better than fiction. Thank God I discovered blogging and could make a career out of being a writer after all. But um, but you've made a career out of being a writer. And look, I mean, I, I you know, I I ended up writing a a Star Trek ripoff, um, <laughs> you know, an Ellery Queen ripoff and mm-hmm. uh, ripoff of something that nobody would ever claim. Uh, you <laughs> are tackling in your new book. I, I'm leading all this. Up, I'm leading people all this up, uh, to, to this. You are tackling F. Scott Fitzgerald. <laughs> and I got to say, let me, you have got, you have got guts. I'm telling you right now with your new book. Yeah. I mean, this is a, this is a great, it's a great idea. First off. I mean, it's, it's the, 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 the obviously it's one of the greatest of American novels. So the, yes. got a great foundation here. Mm-hmm. Plus it's a, um, it's, it's a literary character. That's really almost legendary i would say between daisy and scarlet o'hara in gone with the wind which by the way i just for full disclosure i loved um i loved the great gatsby and i did not yes. love at all <laughs> gone with the wind but recognizing that she's one of the uh-huh. one of the most well-known you know feminine female characters characters in american literature yes uh, I mean, this is really going, starting at the top. I mean, congrats. (laughs) Well, I guess, first of all, the character of Daisy is not as realized in the book as Scarlett O'Hara is. Daisy is actually in The Great Gatsby, an appendage to the men. It's really the men's story. Nick Carraway narrates it. Um, then there's her husband, Tom Buchanan, who's kind of brutish. And then, of course, there's Jay Gatsby, who loved her so much that he stalked her. <laughs> right. You know, he was like a stalker. Yeah, it's really interesting to read and, this, you know, a, a century later, right? Because um, yes. I had read it when I was younger and I was impressed. You know, I really enjoyed mm-hmm. it. And my, my son mm-hmm. was going through high school and it was a required reading. So both his mother and I read the book over again. I was like, wow, this is great. Yes. That, but that that kind of came into my mind at that time. It was like, <laughs> you know, these days we'd say, you know, creep alert, creep alert. Yes, uh, <laughs> yes he buys the house across from her. Yeah. But I, you know, the book I loved the book, too, the first time I read it, which was probably when I was in high school, and then reread it over the years and read practically everything that Fitzgerald wrote after that. He, um, in Gatsby, the, the thing that I remembered most after I read it wasn't the plot. I would have been hard-pressed to tell you the plot after I read it. It was that sense of yearning that he captured, that great sense of longing. Um, There's a German word for that, Sehnsucht. And I felt that he, it, it pervaded the book. And I just loved it, as obviously so many people have since then, although it was not a bestseller when it came out originally. The, um, so I, you know, I, I've been a writer for a long time. And, but it took me a long time to give myself permission to write fiction. 
because I thought of it in terms of that's an area for people who went to Ivy League schools or elite uh, creative writing programs or move in that milieu. So well, I, I just I just assigned it to people who actually had talent for it, which clearly I did not. So, <laughs> well, I didn't start writing fiction till I think it was in my late. 40s or writing it seriously. And by that, I mean, taking the time to learn about the business and to learn how to craft long form fiction. Um, so it took me that long to work up my courage to do it. So when Gatsby came into the public domain last year, I was fearless by then. <laughs> you know, I'd gotten rid of all my fears about what I could or couldn't write. And right. I loved the book and I thought, wow, now it's in the public domain so you can use the characters to write your own book. There have been a couple of uh, books that have come out since then uh, about one about Nick Carraway and novel. And um, yeah, I was aware of that one, yeah. Mm -hmm. And there's another one called Beautiful Little Fools by Jillian Cantor, which I, have, I haven't I have read either of them yet because I didn't want to influence myself when I was right. writing. But that one is about the women in the story. Um, but I just thought, hey, it would be cool to hear Daisy's voice, to who, hear who she really was, because in the book, she's like a cipher. You know, right. you don't she's really an ideal. She's, she's an ideal a, and, yes. and she's a, and she is a um a flawed ideal because yes. of her lack of courage in the end. You know, you mentioned beautiful little fools, and I don't know if you've ever seen the um the movie Promising Young Women. No. It's actually really good. And it's played by the same actress who played uh Daisy in the uh Baz Luhrmann uh oh, version. Which I liked actually. Yeah, you know, I, I actually, <laughs> Boz Lerman's movies are kind of a mess. His Elvis yes. is more of a mess. Yeah. But I actually did sort of enjoy um, his his Gatsby. It was a little over the top and wretched excess. Right. Um, but uh, in the movie Promising Young Woman, I, I, and I'm, I, I am struggling to remember the actress's name. She's a very good actress. I can't think of her name at the moment. Um, mm -hmm. But she, she actually, in, yeah. She actually quotes <laughs> Daisy in promising young woman by saying you know and it's the it's the line about beautiful beautiful yes young you know i hope that i hope that you know i hope that my daughter is a beautiful young fool because beautiful. Uh, yeah yeah well it's that was another thing that struck me about daisy when i was going to write my book is when you do see her or hear her in the great gatsby she's always or often saying something very clever, like, uh, do you always wait for the longest day of the year and then miss it? I wish my daughter was a beautiful little fool. And she's, so she comes off to me as someone who's quite intelligent, but who might mask that under cleverness and yeah. does that in order to please the men in her life. So, my book is about her transition from being an appendage, being just someone on the arm of someone to deciding 
what her own future is going to be. Yeah, I always got the sense, too, that she was more or less a um, in, in Fitzgerald's writing. She was more or less a device. Yes. And, and part of that is because. Fitzgerald himself had had the experience of not being good enough to marry somebody's daughter. That was right. part of the thing that was driving yes. him in writing this book. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, Daisy was just the unattainable ideal. Yes. It didn't really require a lot of fleshing out other than the fact that she had to be an, uh, an unattainable ideal that was worth worth everything that Gatsby put into this. Yep. Really like got all the money in the world, but without <laughs> Daisy, it's, you know, it's nothing. So you have to make her into sort of an idealized person. How right. difficult is it uh, in your book, Daisy, to make her into a real flesh and blood three-dimensional character who's, you know, and, and, you know, also we have to remember that she's trapped in the context of her time too, right? where she doesn't have a lot of other options other than to play into this sort of masculine created um, role that she's trapped in. And, and yes. she, she's trapped in it as much as anybody else is in, in Gatsby's, in the great Gatsby. Well, I think, um, first of all, I think there are some analyses of the great Gatsby that see her as an avatar for the American dream, riches mm. and position. Yeah. Um, when I started writing her, I had a general idea of where I wanted to take her. But as I wrote her, she became more and more real in my own mind. So it didn't become difficult to make her real because you're constantly thinking of, okay, what would, what would she do now when confronted with this circumstance? And um, I think some of her, her struggles in my book are still... Uh, felt by women today. And I, you know, I, I know that hot air is a conservative blog. <laughs> I think that conservative women can identify with some feminist themes. I mean, it's, I think it's a mistake to be dismissive, in fact, of some feminist concerns. And Daisy, of course, is a creature of the 1920s. So there are some struggles she faces that women don't face today, like managing her own money, having access to her own money, that sort of thing. <clears throat> but she also faces some stereotypes or negative uh, descriptions of women. So women are not seen as uh, assertive. A man might be described as assertive or forceful, but a woman might be called pushy or, or aggressive. Uh, a woman who's smart and articulate might be called intimidating. I right. mean, I, I know women who have gone through that in the workforce who uh, get evaluations with those kinds of words where you have to think if it were a man, they would be, there'd be more um, flattering adjectives used. Right. I mean, I, 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 I'll go back to my own experiences in the corporate world. And this is something that used to frustrate me. And as a conservative, even used to frustrate yes. me that 
you know, you if you had women who were in managerial or executive roles and they were tough, mm-hmm. you didn't call, they, they weren't called tough. They were referred to as the B word. Right? Yes, I was sometimes, thinking that. Sometimes with admiration, but most often not. Yes. <laughs> However, if you had a if you had a, a male boss who was just as tough, mm-hmm. he's tough. He's a tough guy. Yeah, he's a hard, he's kind of a hard-nosed guy. He's you know, yeah. he's, he's a little tough to deal with. He's a hard-nosed guy, that sort of thing. It's like, well, okay, she's a hard-nosed woman by the same standard. Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, and I, I mean, I don't think you need to be a liberal to to understand that um there has long been a mm-hmm. double standard applied to women in the workforce and in other places. I would argue, of course, that things are <laughs> tremendously better since oh, uh, yeah. since Fitzgerald wrote the book. But again, yes. you're, in the milieu, you're still in the milieu of the era of the Great Gatsby when you're writing Daisy. And right. Think, and yeah, I think to a large extent, even though you're in that milieu, there's still going to be things that mean, and not just women who are going to relate to the obstacles, the hurdles that she has in front of her. And Quite frankly, if you've read the Gat, if you've read Gatsby, you have to wonder whether or not she even mounts. I, I'm I'm sure she does because you're writing the book, and that that would make it interesting. Whether or not she, you have to wonder in Gatsby's telling of Daisy, whether she's even got the, um, you know the the character to push back against that, the character to um to resist that, or whether yes. she's just going to remain passive her entire life and let the powerful men around her, um, uh, you know, border up and, 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 and keep her isolated. Right. So- well, that is one of the um, decisions or challenges that I have her confront because she eventually has to decide, would she be going from one gilded cage to another? Exactly. If, yeah. if she left Tom to go to, um, to Jay. And not only that, she'd have to worry about her daughter. And in my book, she does love her daughter. She does not want her to be a beautiful little fool. And she no, that was clearly to... a lament of hers. That was a lament. It wasn't her, yes. wasn't her dream. It was yes. Yeah. And she worries about whether or not she'd be able to keep her if she left a very powerful rich man like her husband. Would she become another an Anna Karenina, in other words? So, right. um, but I, I just, I loved writing it because as I said, I love Fitzgerald and it, it felt like I was writing fan fiction. <laughs> well, you know, but I mean, I mean, there was a sequel written to Gone with the Wind too. I mean, I, I'll just throw that in there. I oh think was, yes, that was awful. It was awful. Right? <laughs> but this isn't. I mean, that was sort of the official sequel, right? That was the right. one that was right. um, Margaret Mitchell's estate sort of blessed and endorsed. Yes. Uh, anything that goes through that kind of a process, you can pretty much guarantee it's not going to be worth it. <laughs> right. um, so, I mean, you're on your own on this, and you're you're taking your own your own cues on this. And I, I will I will say this too, and I think that this is something that. I think it's obvious if you're looking at Gatsby, getting to your point about gilded cages, and the, the moment that she realizes that Gatsby's going to be a gilded cage as well is when he refuses to acknowledge, refuses to to allow her to acknowledge that she loved Tom. Oh yes, that is a big point in the novel that he 
he just wants so badly that she didn't really love him, that she just, I don't know, married him, what, on a whim or something? But yeah, you he know, really yeah. wants that. Well, it's, I mean, but it's it's really a, a you know, and Gatsby's very, um, you know, Fitzgerald makes him very sympathetic in this, even though he's yes. not, it's not, even though he's kind of, you know, sort of organized crime figure yeah. discover. They make him yeah. he makes him very sympathetic because of course he's a stand-in for Fitzgerald himself and Fitzgerald's exactly. own, own um inadequacy, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I I would give credit to Fitzgerald for for having this be a conscious decision on his part. But the fact that he is dictating terms to Daisy in that conversation mm-hmm. and not allowing her her own agency shows yes. that he's basically a, a mirror image of Tom. It's just that you're going to change right. pages. And so right. that is, I'm, I'm glad that we're talking about this because I think that if you're going to launch a, a character study of Daisy, which I think it'd be, it's going to be fascinating in your book, I'm sure you've really got to include that, which is that yes, there's a reason why she bailed out in that hotel room in the, mm-hmm. in the climax of mm-hmm. the great Gatsby. And it's because she wasn't offered any options. Right. None. Right. Right. And uh, by the way, I don't want to give away the ending of my book. It's no. like, it's different. <laughs> don't do that. Um, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't give away anything. No, we buy it. no spoiler alerts. No spoiler <laughs> alerts. But but there is that still same, uh, the same sense in that scene that she's got this terribly important decision to make. And on both sides, she sees peril. Yes. For herself and for her daughter in particular, um, you know, keeping them together. Uh, you know, I, you really impressed me with how much how much detail you remember from Gatsby. Well, you know, I mean, it, it's again, it's the great American novel really is the great yeah. American novel. Yes. I, I mean, I think that I, I actually think that there's actually a better selection for that. It's it's the consensus for the great American novel. I would argue, though, that mm-hmm. uh, Herman Wauk's, um, um oh, gosh, the Kane Mutiny um, was oh. is, is even better. Uh, I mean, we could talk about that at length. But I think that that is actually the great American novel, especially the great American post-industrial novel, which oh. of course. Which because it because of the wide scope of it and and I think that the yeah. uh, the central character whose name escapes me at the moment, which also I think is a stand-in for Herman Welk himself, um, mm-hmm. is a is a personification of America, which is to say you know fat, self-indulgent, uh, totally immature, going into World War II mm-hmm. and going through the crucible of World War II becomes a very worldly, very um, grounded um mature and much um mm-hmm. much grimmer character than was i'm trying to remember that i haven't read the cane mutiny in a long time was the character you're talking about was he played by in the movie by van johnson no that was uh that was Eddie no Albert? no he was played by uh it was a he was a um he died young. He was, I mean, it was sort of like it's going to be a springboard into movie stardom. And I think he ended mm-hmm. up dying young and didn't do much after that um, before he passed away. 
Um, I'm trying to remember the name of the character and it will come to me sometime around two o'clock in the morning. I promise not to call you. <laughs> and then I remember you'll forget it. it when you wake up. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I mean, but, but Gatsby and the Kane mutiny, I think mm -hmm. talk about very different parts of America and, uh, and our great American novels for different reasons. Yes. But, but so, yeah, I mean, I think that you can't understand you can't understand the the desire for upward mobility and mm -hmm. the obstacles that are the soft obstacles, the obstacles that nobody talks about. Yes. It, um, unless you've read the Great Gatsby and, and understand the Great Gatsby, especially if you know the context yes. of Gerald's life. And um, and, and so, yeah, I, I am. Um, he, he I'm a fan so, of the book. So that's the reason. He why. was so good at capturing that that sense of never quite being good enough, you know, not just in The Great Gatsby, but in some other things that he wrote. He, and, and I have to say this about him, which I like. Um, I, I, I'm a fan of Fitzgerald. I'm not so much a fan of Ernest Hemingway. I've and, never, you know, you and me both, I've never actually gotten okay. Hemingway thing. I really have it. I know he's talented yeah. and he had a really interesting life, but it yep. just doesn't interest me. I, I've, I think I've read A Farewell to Arms like five times trying to like it. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing that I like about Fitzgerald is that he uses Zelda a lot, his wife Zelda, for models for the women in his books. And he always treats those women characters as if they are beautiful creatures. And um, he, he doesn't demean them. Whereas right. I think Hemingway was not the same way about the women in his life. And no, I, I think you're right about that. Um, by the way, Willie Keith was the name of the main character in okay. the Kane Mutiny, um, and it was played by, um, I, I will tell you in just a second, it's not that this came, Robert Francis was his name, was the actor's name. Oh. And uh, yeah, again, very short career. Uh, he died at 25 in an airplane wow. crash, and it was wow. not long after the movie was released. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and I'm not... Uh, this is not me having marvelous powers of recall. This is me doing Wikipedia while we're talking. So. Yeah, I can kind of see you there <laughs> looking at it. Well, now I'm going to have to reread the Kane Mutiny. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, I don't want to get too far off of Daisy. We're probably going to need to wrap this up here in a minute anyway. Okay. I mean, I, this is my argument for the Kane Mutiny being the great American novels. It really does. The, the, the arc of Willie Keith in this, who's a, a mama's mm -hmm. boy, you know, who is who is just pampered and indulged and completely immature and mm -hmm. irresponsible, um, who is coddled and protected into, um, into, you know, um, uh, an officer program for the Navy. Mm -hmm. um, after he actually stands up to his mother once and says, no, I'm not going to work in Washington. I want to be part of the war effort. Um, mm -hmm. This is the arc of America. Prior, you know, through yes. the, through, through the yes. war, we were we were you know, really putting aside the depression. We're sort of a self-indulgent, isolated, you know, not terribly interested in anything else but ourselves kind of country. Mm -hmm. And by the time you get done with World War II, we've become the leader of the free world. 
yeah. in a real in a very real sense. We you know we the pretense is over. Mm -hmm. American power is replacing the British Empire in mm -hmm. terms of you know the you know Pax Americana, and we became a lot more serious as a country. Uh, mm -hmm. in, in Welk's telling of this. And and so when you read The Cane Mutiny, you really have to see it through the whole thing. And people who haven't read this, who've only seen the film, which the film is fabulous. Yes. The film is only a narrow slice of the book. <laughs> it's, only, right. it's only a narrow slice of the book. It is it is about much more than this. And one of my one of my dreams, if I want a billion dollars tomorrow, Libby, <laughs> I, would, I would make two different, I would make two different limited series. I've produced two different limited series. One is... <laughs> One is a, red, a redoing of the Scarlet and the Black because I think that's a uh, fascinating story. And Gregory Peck was in that, by the way, and he was it was fun. But uh, uh -huh. I'd, I'd like to do it as a as a mini series. But the other is to do a mini series of the entire book of of the Cane Mutiny because okay. I think. Yeah. Well, and let's talk about your book, though. <laughs> but uh, maybe you could maybe you could make a mini series of my book, too. I would love that. That'd be like billions. Yes. If, if I win a billion dollars, Libby, make sure you, you catch up with me and I will promise <laughs> yes. you. If, if you remember me. <laughs> you're unforgettable. And I'm sure Daisy will be as well. So tell us where people can find Daisy. Um, you can find it on all the major book e-tailers, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, of course, um, Kobo, Apple, uh, okay. and some bookstores might be stocking it in this day and age. I'm published by a small press, so sometimes you have to order it to get it in, but it'll be available in hardcover next month. And it is available right now digitally. So if you yep. have Kindles or Nooks or read on a tablet, you can find it. Well, there you go. And Libby, where can people find you? LibbySternberg.com. Oh, that's pretty easy. L-I-B-B-Y-S-T-E-R-N-B-E-R-G.com. Yes. Yes. So that's E-R-G, Sternberg, E-R-G, not U-R-G. Yes. E -R -G. So, mm -hmm. yep, that's where you can find Libby. Libby, are you on social media at all? I am on Twitter as Libby's Books and uh, Instagram. There you go. So you can find her in all those places and you can find Daisy in all those places. So I'll be sure to check that out. If you loved the story, The Great Gatsby, you'll want to know what Libby uh, envisions for uh, Daisy, which is, again, I, I think one of the, I, you said it earlier, a, a great literary cipher. And yes. I am I, I am really, I, I got to read this book because I'm really curious to see how you <laughs> laid it out. And so and, thank and you if, so much. If you read it, leave a review. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> On Amazon or elsewhere. <laughs> Make sure to review it. All right. Libby Sternberg, right. author of Daisy which is now out. Go check it out. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Ed. Stay tuned for just a little bit more from The Ed Morrissey Show coming up next. Thank you for watching or listening to The Ed Morrissey Show podcast. You can subscribe to us on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and through the Town Hall Media Player, or you can just come to hotair.com and watch my podcast for free. However, I'd also love to have you join us as members of our VIP and VIP Gold programs. 
That allows us to defeat the stranglehold that big tech has on information and get you the best information that we possibly can. Plus, we have a lot of new value-added content coming to us from Town Hall Media uh, stars and my good friend Adam Baldwin. He and I are doing the video series, The Amiable Skeptics. It's one hour of discussion a week strictly for our VIP and VIP Gold members. Plus, we have our VIP Gold chat with Kem Edwards every Wednesday afternoon at 1.30 p.m. We'd love to have you as members. Be sure to join up. Thanks again for watching the Ed Morrissey Show podcast.